I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Welcome to Study Hall, the podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about advertising. What's up, Study Haulers? It was my pleasure to have Dr. Terrence Kelly on the podcast this month after a lot of calendar and computer challenges, with which he was very patient. Here are some highlights. Um, What I see in the industry right now, and I'm working with a lot of PCs, I'm working with a lot of of startups in various capacities. Um, What I see is the ideas that are coming out of of academic labs are fantastic. Um, They're really clever. Um, They're much more mature than they were 10 or 15 years ago in terms of mature being like almost business ready. Um, So people are much more savvy about what it takes to, um, to, to convince investors to invest in stuff. You know, everybody loves the idea of being CEO of a company that they found and, and you know, being the next Jeff Bezos. But realistically, most scientists I know, and I would even put myself in that category, were not prepared to you know, be the salespeople that you need to be to be a good CEO. But for me, the question of, of filling, you know, the bank account at, at a certain point becomes the CEO's major job. And, you know, that is not straightforward. You, you network, um, you know, sending an email to info at, you know, vcnumber12.com is unlikely to get you very, very far. We had VCs who had invested. Um, we had a strategic partner. And you, you talked to all of them about opening doors. You know, I think the benefit of the VCs is that a successful VC is going to give you exposure to a lot of really, really important people in the industry. Um, there's, there's a shortage of, of I think, um, people who have been there, people who have done it, um, uh, to, to sort of man these, um, to, to, to man the, the, the companies that are being started up. What makes Dr. Kelly so interesting to us study haulers is that he's gone from the lab bench at a large pharma company to the C-suite at a biotech startup and offers some client-side insights into career path, leadership, and capital raising in the pharma world. And at the end, we even get into a short discussion on how marketing and advertising skills apply to early-stage pharma companies, which I hope you find enlightening. I did. So, who is Terrence Kelly? Well, Dr. Kelly has over 28 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. and Europe. After finishing postdoctoral studies in 1990, he worked as a medicinal chemist at Boehringer Ingelheim on projects in the areas of immunology, virology, CNS, and cardiovascular diseases. From 2002 to 2009, he led BI's medicinal chemistry department in the U.S., which included 145 scientists in the high-throughput screening, computational chemistry, structural biology, combinatorial chemistry, and medicinal chemistry groups. Under his direction as project leader and as the department's vice president, the organization advanced multiple compounds into clinical development. Dr. Kelly is the co-author on over 25 scientific publications and served on the College of Natural Sciences Advisory Council for the University of Texas. He 
He joined Comentis in 2010 as Chief Scientific Officer and was responsible for the research and preclinical development activities in their portfolio of scientific programs and the partnership with Astellas Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Kelly was appointed by the board as President and CEO in November of 2011 and was responsible for the development and implementation of corporate strategy as well as fundraising activities and partnering. Since 2016, he's been consulting on startups and existing companies in the biotech field through his LLC. He's a board member of Cardax and Allocyte AG. At Cardax, a publicly traded company, Dr. Kelly also serves as chairman of the audit committee. And without further ado, here's the interview. So why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, how did you get into pharma research? Um, so I was a science, I'm a scientist by training. Um, mm-hmm. I studied chemistry at RPI. I have a PhD in chemistry from the University of Texas. Um, and when I was finishing up my graduate work, I talked to my advisor and I, I told him I either wanted to go into academic research or, or pharma research because I, um, I liked the idea of designing molecules and, and in a sense, manipulating you know, the very, very smallest level of nature. Um, so uh, we, we talked about what would be the next steps that would enable either of those. And uh, I ended up taking a postdoc at Yale. Um, and uh, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, um, the pharmaceutical industry was starting, was hiring chemists left and right. It was a great job market. Mm-hmm. And the offers I got from pharma were much more attractive, not just financially, but um, just in terms of what you're able to do, the resources that are at your disposal, and, and really sort of when I thought about specifically what I wanted to do, um, it, it was just the right environment for me. Mm-hmm. Where did you start off studying? I spent a long time working in um, immune-related diseases, and at the time um, that included HIV, was mm-hmm. considered more of an immune disease as opposed to a uh, a viral disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I worked a little bit on on um, HIV. I worked a, a little bit on just other uh, immunological diseases such as arthritis and psoriasis. And and most of my career at Beringer, so at least the first ten years when I was, um, you know, still running a research group, it was it was really focused on those sort of indications. So multiple sclerosis, psoriasis. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, um, all of these have common underpinnings in the, in the immune system and dysregulation of the immune system. Mm-hmm. And so you're working away, you're at the lab bench, and then I guess eventually the the idea occurred to you to start climbing the management ladder. How did that, how did that play out? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think careers are, are, you know, 50% preparedness and, and, and 50% opportunities, right? Yeah, um, that's right. So I, I think anybody has the ability to demonstrate, you know, leadership potential. And and I think sometimes it's a misnomer that you want to pursue this path or you want to pursue that. But I think mm-hmm. people tend to gravitate towards things there where they have, where there's a need and, and where they have, you know, certain skills. Um I I think I was recognized not just for my science, but also for, you know, the ability to work on a team, the ability to communicate fairly succinctly um, some complex ideas. Mm-hmm. If you can reduce complex ideas to to simple thoughts that 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 people can understand, I think you'll you'll be 
marked as a good communicator. And, mm-hmm. and that's especially true in, in science. I mean, we all know the people who, when you ask them what time it is, they, they tell you how to build a clock, right? Yes. So you don't need that. You just need, sometimes you just need the succinct answer and you need to understand the level of the audience that you're speaking to. If you're speaking to a Nobel laureate, you have to talk in a certain way with a certain amount of detail. And if you're talking to, you know, your, your grandmother mm-hmm. who knows nothing about science, then you have to sort of be able to pull it really back and, mm-hmm. and, and talk at a very high level. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, those sort of skills um, were developed over time. They're certainly mm-hmm. developed all through graduate school and postdoc. And, and I think that they, you know, they, the, the industry I was in allowed for, for them to be recognized. And, you know, I think I was, um, you know, you think that companies have a plan, right? But they don't. Um, but when a need arises, they look for suitable candidates. And, um, you know, the company was growing so fast in the early 90s that in the mid 90s that um, there were a lot of opportunities for, you know, smaller groups to, to lead projects, to lead smaller groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, success at those levels uh, gives you the opportunity to be considered at the next level. And eventually, um, I was uh, a vice president of, of chemistry at Beringer. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I'm sure you were looking at a, at a fairly, you could have kept on that track, I'm sure, and had a fairly distinguished career, a very distinguished career. But at some point, you obviously decided running your own company was something you'd like to do. When, when did that first enter your mind? Well, I mean, I think, again, I think a lot of it is opportunistic, right? So mm-hmm. um, when when I left Beringer, um, it wasn't, it, it was one of those, it was during one of those phases where there were a lot of changes being moved on, and I was one of the people caught up in that. Uh-huh. Um, I had been fortunate that I had um, a lot of good contacts in the industry, and I, I essentially had a, a choice. Do I remain in the big pharma environment or, or do I try something new? And one of the first things that came along was the opportunity to work as a chief science officer. So in, in charge of all of, of R&D and to a certain extent, the clinical side um, at a, a biotech that was a well-funded biotech that was based in San Francisco. Um, and it was really a, a fantastic fit for me because um, they had a major collaborator um, they, there was an, they needed um, somebody with a background in chemistry because that was really the day-to-day problems they were fighting. And they wanted somebody um, who, who had experiences in large collaborations. Now, I had always been on the, you know, on the big side, the big mm-hmm. partner side, um, but actually as a small company going in, having somebody with that experience um, really helped um, smooth out a lot of, uh, you know, potential bumps in the road because when, you know, big companies speak differently and move differently than, than smaller companies. And so having somebody who had been on both sides, I think had, um, you know, en- enabled me to, to make a fairly unique contribution. Um, so I had been the chief science officer for, I think it was about 18 months. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, uh, the company hit um, a couple of uh, problems with uh, with, with the CE, the people in the CEO role mm-hmm. um, that that essentially opened the role. Um, and, you know, at that point, uh, the company was well-funded. Um, uh-huh. They didn't need to raise money. Uh, and 
you know, they really weren't sure where they were going in the future, mm-hmm. but they asked me to step in as the CEO role. And and for the first year or so, I would say that it was just a continuation of my old role, but I was just being exposed a little bit more uh-huh. to, to the board dynamics, to um, the, the fundraising aspects. And then as we started turning over and starting to think about the next level or the next stage of the strategic direction, that's where sort of um, I needed to really learn the entrepreneurship side, really learn the venture side, really mm-hmm. learn um, that a CEO's role is, is, is largely uh, raising money in these small companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, um, fortunately, I had, have a, had a good board, um, very experienced, very willing to advise and help mm-hmm. uh, and to open doors. And, and that's where, you know, so that's sort of where uh, the development took me. So was there ever a point where you were sitting there trying to work out whether or not you wanted to stay as CSO or move over to CEO? Did that, and, and if it, if that did occur, what was it like for you and what kind of things did you think about as you were trying to decide whether or not you wanted to do it? Well, I mean, I think always with, with my career, uh, you know, I think at a certain point you stop worrying about titles. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm certainly at that point right now. I work with a lot of companies and, uh, you know, I, I really don't care what, what, what the title is. Um, I think what's important, especially at small companies, is that people realize that, you know, there are different formal roles, mm-hmm. but everyone has to learn how to master everything. Because if one person leaves, you can't have a big gap. You have to really be able to cover for each other. Right. So when, when they asked me, um, you know, it wasn't completely unexpected. Um, unfortunately, the, my, my predecessor had become ill and and passed away uh, oh. very very quickly and so it was it was you know clearly the the organization was was reeling a little bit from from the loss of him and he 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 was a great man i I, yep. I really miss him um but it was pretty clear that I was the other senior person on the on the management team and that I was at least going to take an interim role of running the company because you know, 95% of the employees were effectively reporting it to me anyway, because right. it's a small shop, right? Right. And so, so they asked me to, to to step in, and and they quickly made it permanent, um, and and then they gave me the guidance I needed to develop it, and and I think that that's where, you know, you sort of early on in your career, and and I was the same way. People are focused on the next promotion, right? They're mm-hmm. focused on getting that raise, getting that promotion, getting the recognition. Yeah. But I think at, at some point, you just do what, what's necessary regardless. I mean, at, at the C-level um, in any company, you're going to be well compensated. So it, it's, really not, it, it's really not about money per se. But what it really is is about what's the need? Can you fill it? Are you the best person to fill it? Um, because we, we need this small venture to be successful. And you have to know when you are the right person and when you're not the right person. I mean, was there anything that surprised you? I know you've been you've been talking about how you all everybody covers for each other and, and you kind of have to know everybody's role. But once you got into the CEO role, was there any moments where you thought, "Whoa, I didn't didn't realize there was going to be this much of X," or I had no idea why it was going to be so much of a so much of an issue? Yeah, so I mean, this is going to show you the naivete I had walking into this role, but mm-hmm. I had no idea how much work it is to raise money. <laughs> just, um, and, and maybe 
you know, a large part of this was that I, I mm-hmm. just had never been through it before. But when you work for, uh, you know, when you work for a company that's well funded and has, you know, 10 billion or 20 billion in sales, I'm not going to say you don't worry about your budget, but but you know that whatever budget gets approved, it, it's going to be funded, right? Um, right. But when you're right. in a small company and you you obviously have to have extremely high budget discipline, but that that wasn't really a problem. I think anyone with any operating experience would have that. Right. But for me, the question of of filling, you know, the bank account at, at a certain point becomes the CEO's major job. And, you know, that is not straightforward. There are lots of ways. There are a lot of different types of investors. There are a lot of different um, ways to raise money. Uh, you need a mix of, of luck and um, great story, great management team. You need to have your current investors completely vested in the, in the process. Um, and you need, there are a lot of different components that having never been through this, um, that, that I had to sort of learn on the fly. I think I would have benefited from being the CSO under a CEO who had done this before mm-hmm. and having seen the whole process and being part of the team that did it, but maybe in the second chair, right? Yep. When you don't want to be, um, you know, I don't want to say you don't want to be, I, I mean, I survived obviously, yeah. but it, it was, it was a lot of, of, of spinning my wheels, um, the, you know, the first time and the second time we went out to raise money mm-hmm. um, just because I had really no idea, no idea of, of valuation. You know, I had no idea of, of what the different types of investors are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, you, had, you had to learn. I was lucky we had we had. Our current investors or our investors at the time mm-hmm. were very supportive and, and they they were very willing to sit me down and, and explain, you know, all of those things that they never teach you in an MBA course on on venture capital. But mm-hmm. um, but it, it was certainly a learning experience. And I, I think I would have benefited from having uh, at least been in the second chair one time through. Uh-huh. What would you what were the what would like, I don't know, the top three things you would you would tell them about raising capital? This is going to sound really simple, but um, until you're in that role, you probably don't think about it. Yeah. The most important thing in a CEO role is to have a very good relationship with your board, um, because especially in venture-backed firms, um, your board are the venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that your understanding of, of, of capital raises and and returns and timeframes is aligned with theirs. and you know, they may have the different VCs on your board may have different um, midterm and long-term objectives. So you have to make sure that uh, that everyone's bought into to what you're doing. I think that that is fundamentally the most important thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is you have to make sure that um, you have a very energized and passionate team um, because you're you're selling. I mean, you're selling yeah. not just your science. You're selling your team's ability to deliver. And then you have to have, um, at least in the biotech world, you have to have a compelling story, um, and and not not fiction, but you know, but but you need a compelling story on why uh, this is going to um, not only change the 
the world for patients, but why the, your product or your company or whatever your investment is, that um, that's going to return money to the investors. Because it, it's, it's obvious, but your, your venture backers and, and your future investors, they may love the fact that they're helping patients, but um, their limited partners want to see a return. And so you always have to realize that their obligation is to their limited partners. Their limited partners' obligation is to the, you know, the pension fund or whoever's at the right. base of the money that's that's being invested in your company. Mm-hmm. And and so you have to not only compel them with the science, but you have to compel them with the investment thesis. Mm-hmm. And so, so how does a capital raising conversation start? You know, how how does that how do you approach capital? Do they approach you? What what's the how do you go from zero to sort of something in the capital raising world? Well, it depends on what what stage you're at, right? Uh-huh. I mean, so we had been funded. Um, you know, the company had raised a fair amount of money, so we at least had. Um, uh, you know, the, the previous generations of, of CEOs and business development had had been through this. And so the company was known to the investment community, which was certainly an advantage. Yeah. Um, and so you you network, um, you know, sending an email to info at, you know, VC number 12.com right. yeah. is unlikely to get you very, very far. Got it. Um, you know, they want to look at Things that they're interested in. Um, so you, we we were we had VCs who had invested. Um, we had a strategic partner, and you you talk to all of them about opening doors because every VC who's ever been in a syndicate has people that they like to work with and they don't want to work with. And mm-hmm. you know the people they want to work with, they funnel investment opportunities to and say, hey, take a look at this. And so you sort of build that network and you 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 start from that that small snowball and you try to, to turn it into a boulder by, by just um, talking. And you're constantly on the phone. You're constantly talking to people. You're constantly getting feedback on your pitch. What do they like? What they don't like? Um, you, so you're constantly um, editing it on the fly. Um, and and you, you spend a lot of time traveling and, and going into people's offices. Um, you know, in the U.S., it's primarily – San Francisco and Boston, but there are other mm-hmm. um, VC centers in, in the U.S. When you're going into for these meetings, how long do they generally last? So they can be as short as half an hour. Uh-huh. Um, they never go longer than an hour, wow. at least not on the initial pitch. I see. I see. And, and, then, then, and then if you get through the initial pitch, they'll tend, send you over to their technical team who will start asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, keep asking questions. And the more they keep asking questions, eventually, um, you know, you'll have to go under a, a, a CDA with them because there's always some stuff you don't want to show. But you, you want to show them as much as you possibly can, and you really have to sort of make a, a strategic decision. What 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 are really the, the crown jewels in our portfolio that we can't let anybody see until mm-hmm. they're under a CDA? But the more you can talk openly with people, Prior to that, um, the more traction you're going to get. Because if, if you tell them, well, I'd love to tell you this is great, but I can't show you any data, um, you're not going to be invited back for further discussions. I see. 
Yeah, I would imagine that. Um, yeah, I'd imagine at a certain point they'd need to look under the hood. So when you're looking at when you're sort of thinking about the capital raise, we've sort of talked about who the players are, but let's take a little more of a detailed look at that. So who are the players? There's VC. Um, there's who else is who else is part of the um, the game here? Well, a lot depends on the stage that mm -hmm. that you're at. So okay. a lot of um, small companies, so companies right out of an academic environment, for example, right. um, that that are at a very, very early stage. You know, you have the federal government, you have the SBIR program, you have the NIH. That's a mm -hmm. great source of funding. It's it's also non-dilutive. There are foundations that give grants, and a very, very small company can can do an incredible amount of money with a you know a two hundred thousand dollar grant or. To, uh, tremendous amount of science with a $200 grant from SBIR or something like sure. that. Mm -hmm. And and it's completely non-dilutive, so it's 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 great. Right. Um, non-dilutive just just to be clear, that means it doesn't it doesn't dilute your ownership interest in the company. They exactly. give you the money I mean, it, and they don't ask for any any equity. I don't want to say it's it's free money, but it's essentially right. it's it's a grant. Um, right. you know, you don't have to pay it back. It's not a loan and they don't want an equity stake. It's not an investment, it's a grant. So, um, so that's, that's the first part. And then a lot of small companies get started with, um, angel money. These are typically high net worth individuals or family offices, and you might be able to cobble together a couple million dollars from them, mm -hmm. um, which you'll get some money. It's not going to be, you're not going to get a lot of advice from those groups, um, for, probably because it's right. a very small investment, um, but it's, what are angels normally looking for? Are they just looking to hit a home run pretty much? Um, or what are they looking for? So I actually don't have a lot of experience with angels. Um, oh, okay. I, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the family offices, so the angels that I, I'm, I'm associating with family offices, mm -hmm. um, may have a particular area, you know, maybe a family member died of a certain type of cancer. So they have a nice. specific focus that they want to fund research in a certain area. Um, the larger, more sophisticated family offices run sort of like VCs, mm -hmm. um, where they, they may actually take a board seat and they may actually be willing to do a, a further investment in a company once it, it hits certain milestones. Mm -hmm. um, the VCs, I think, um, have a lot of, you know, I think the benefit of the VCs is that a successful VC is going to give you exposure to a lot of really, really important people in the industry. So when you need to raise money, they'll have people that they've syndicated with before. When you need to talk to uh, specific pharma companies because they might be interested in a collaboration or even mm -hmm. buying your product or your, your early stage product and developing it for you, um, you know, they know how to, they know how to get to right to the, decision makers. So you don't have to go through six layers of business development. You can go right to the decision makers. And they'll also, um, they also have a network of, of people who have been successful at C-level, um, the, the various C-levels, and, and they can supplement your management team um, with really experienced, good people who have been there, done that. And, and that's really, that's really valuable. Yeah. Now, VC money is what, what what we would call expensive money because they they they're going to want a large chunk of your company from it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it comes with 
uh, it comes with a lot of pluses in terms of what they can what they can develop for you. And then later on, once you get past sort of that venture growth phase, so you can think of the angels as being maybe up to five million dollars. You can think of uh, the VCs nowadays. VCs have large funds, so they can probably go up above fifty million. But typically, that's the number that I always sort of associate with 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 VCs is somewhere between twenty and fifty million. Um, and then above that, you can look at, um, you know, crossover investors, which are, um, you know, these are these are really big money management companies that invest in companies that are likely to go public at some point or be bought out someplace. But mm -hmm. they'll they'll do sort of a short, let's call it a one to two year investment window where they're expecting to get either liquidity or an immediate return. Um, and then there are the public markets, which, um, you know, basically taking a company public gives you access to all sorts of capital because yeah. there are a lot of there are a lot of um, sources of capital out there that have liquidity requirement. I mean, the whole a large part of the hedge fund industry um, have each of the funds have lots of money, but they also have liquidity. They can't invest in non-liquid assets and mm -hmm. a privately held pharma or biotech company you can't liquidate that asset very easily. Right. Um, so, so if it's publicly traded, at least their, their stock has a, has a liquidity component to it. And, and that gives them that, that opens up a, a, a broad range of, 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 of um, investors to you. Huh. So let's turn back to your, to the first raise that you were doing when you first started for first started uh, in the CEO role. So what would you say you got right about that? that raise and what would you change if you could? Uh, well, I mean, I think I'm not sure a lot went right in that. I, I think what, <laughs> what I took out of that was, was really the learning experience and just, uh -huh. you know, just understanding what this is all about. Right. I, I, I think I understood a lot more about how to put together a pitch deck. I think I understood a lot more about how decisions on investment are made. Um, you know, we were not successful in our in, in our first um, attempt at this, mm -hmm. uh, but it exposed me to a lot of big players. You know, and and the pitches went fine. It just, mm -hmm. you know, it was just not the right time. There were some structural issues with the company that I think um, eventually uh, caused it to to close um, and and made it a very difficult investment for for folks. Um, but it. It wasn't, you know, it was something that probably an experienced CEO would have picked up on, um, mm -hmm. but at, at that point, I, it, 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 I wasn't aware of it. And but you learn it, and and you address it in, in the next round. So, I see. So and so, listening to your answer, it sounds like it sounds like being part of an unsuccessful pitch or um, a capital raise that doesn't go as planned. That doesn't necessarily hurt you with. Uh, the people you're you're talking to in the VC world is that my idea? No, I mean I think yeah, I mean I think you learn quickly who are the type of investors who might be interested. Okay. I mean I think what it taught us was also that you know maybe instead of pursuing a classic uh, venture round, it, it made more sense to do um, a partnering with a pharma company uh, right. and raise money that way. Yep. Um, very popular uh, and, these days. And, it and I think that that was essentially the route we were headed down mm -hmm. uh, before. Um, you know, in this case, we had a, a competitor who had 
um, was working on a similar project and they had some failed phase three clinical trials and 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 that basically um, what was the end of the company we just couldn't raise money or do a partnership after that should it just shut down the whole category of therapy yep it, essentially yeah yeah it's a shame um so I guess that's what you would change if you could, right? You'd, you'd look at the company structure a little more closely. And is there anything else you'd change? Um, no, I think that we did the right things. I mm -hmm. think it was just a hard sell. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can do everything right. Look, this is yeah. also part of the training in science, right? You can do everything right and, yeah, that's and right. It, still, it still doesn't work, right? That's right. That's right. What would you... So just turning quickly away from that, that whole, uh, the, the personal history, what would you... If someone came to you today and said, hey, listen, Terry, I'm thinking about... Um, I've got an idea. It's a good story. I have no money. Um, what would you tell that person? Um, so it depends where they're coming from. Uh, you know, what, what, what is their background? Are they a scientist? Um, do they want to stay in the science world? Mm -hmm. I would, I would advise them to get advice. I would advise them to, um, figure out how much money they need to get to mm -hmm. the next compelling uh, inflection point is, is the word that they use in the industry. But it's basically where you take your your story from being worth $100 to $10,000, right? You get that right. one piece of data that suddenly increases the value of your project, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 fold. So I would really tell them to focus on raising the minimal amount of money, either through grants or whatever they can do to get their story to the point where it's it's much more real, um, and once you can do that, then you can start leveraging your experience. So you're able to raise a small amount of money to bring it to this inflection point. Now you need a little bit bigger, and you take it to the next one. Uh, so I think that you know you want to bootstrap your way up, um, diluting yourself as little as possible. But you, you basically that's that's how you want to do it on the sort of the interplay between science and, and money. But what I would also tell them is to be really, really honest with yourself. What are you good at? What is it that you want to do? Um, you know, everybody loves the idea of being CEO of a company that they found and, and you know, being the next Jeff Bezos. Right. But realistically, most scientists I know, and I would even put myself in that category, were not prepared to you know, be the salespeople that you need to be to be a good CEO. Mm -hmm. um, you can learn it, yep. uh, and and uh, but it's not something that naturally comes comes. It's not something that comes natural, right? You because in science you want to be a little bit cautious. You want to Absolutely. not over interpret data. You, you but you have to sort of be a little bit more on the sales side. Um, so you have to learn that, and and sometimes. I, I know scientists that that fundamentally don't want to learn it, and so that you're not going to be a good CEO if if you can't um, learn how to, to to sell your stuff um, fairly aggressively at times. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so let's turn a little way a little bit away from the capital raising story for a bit, and I I, I just want to ask you about uh, the research environment today. I know you're out there. I know you're running uh, your own consulting firm these days. But what's your opinion of what's going on in research these days? I mean, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think um, what I see in the industry right now, and I'm working with a lot of 
VCs. I'm working with a lot of, of startups in various capacities. Um, what I see is the ideas that are coming out of, of academic labs are fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. They're really clever. Um, they're much more mature than they were 10 or 15 years ago in terms of mature being like almost business ready. Um, so people are much more savvy about what it takes to, um, to, to convince investors to invest in stuff. Could you say more about um, just give me Give me a, 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 a contrast between, say, 15 years ago and today. What? Okay, so, I mean, the, the joke used to be, you know, 20 years ago that, you know, the you clone a gene, you can take the company public, right? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was almost that much of, a, uh, of an overhype. Now, now I think, now what I see coming out are, you know, you, you see a range of stuff, right? Oh. And and they're at various levels of maturity. But I see a lot more projects where um, people have spent their grant money um, not just developing um, the the brilliant idea, which is important. Don't yeah. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But once they have that brilliant idea, they're spending their grant money um, backing it up with data. Um, so. That to me is um, a real, real uh, positive development, and it's going to make things a lot easier to to fund because investors are all about mitigating risk, um, yeah. and so they'll put in just enough money to get you to the next important experiment. And so, if you can do those important experiments up front, um, either however you fund it, you know it makes the story a lot it makes the story a lot more intelligent to investors. And it also convinces the investors that um, you're somebody who's, who's going to be focused on doing the right thing and not just running experiment after experiment for the sake of keeping the company alive. Investors would fundamentally rather invest, you know, let's call it $3 million and get a clean no then invest three million dollars, and then have to invest in another three million, and then another three million. Sure. Um, and not know which way it's going to go. Mm -hmm. So, so they want they don't go mind. Fast. You know, they don't love losing money, but they would rather lose a little bit of money than um, be on the hook for a lot of money that mm -hmm. they don't know where it's going. Sure. And and so if you're if you can convince them that you know you're somebody who's focused on getting the answer, whether it whether it supports your hypothesis or kills it, um, that's really, really important. So those are those are what I'm seeing a little bit on, on the academic side. Is that's mm -hmm. what I mean by the maturity of the science that's coming I out. I see um, also, I, I see that the venture funds in particular um, have raised enormous sums of money. I mean, enormous sums of money. Mm -hmm. And so there's money out there to invest. So you have the ideas. You have the um, you have the potential sources of funding, and the third thing you you need in, in any um, you know anything going back to you know the wealth of nations you you, you need the people right, right. Um, and so you what that that's where the shortage is right now. Um, there's there's a shortage of of I think um, people who have been there, people who have done it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to, to sort of man these, um, to, to, to man the, the, the companies that are being started up. Mm -hmm. And I hear this from every VC I talk to, you know, that they're really, really starved of people. And is that where you play, actually? Is that where your consultancy plays? Are you, 
Yeah, so that's kind of what I do. It depends on what um, what the specific uh, project is. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I, I can help companies either with by, by sitting on the boards or I can be an interim CEO or CSO. Mm -hmm. um, I can help companies develop their pitch. Mm -hmm. um, I don't go out and raise money for, for companies directly. Um, uh -huh. I'm not a broker dealer. But, you know, I, I don't have a problem um, introducing them to people, and I don't have a problem helping them with their pitch. And, and those are sort of what I do right now. I mean, what it, what the benefit for me is it also gives me an overview of what's going on. And, yeah. you know, I expect at some point I will step into another operating role, but it allows me to, um, you know, sort of date before I marry. Yeah, that's um, a great. A little bit. And, and to see to see the, the group, to get to know them, to have them get to know me as well. It's a great model. I mean, it's a... It, I think it's. I, I'm surprised it's not. It's not practiced more often at, at high levels, um, because it it makes a lot of sense to understand the intangibles of someone before they uh, before you settle in. I'm, I'm surprised. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so much of small. You need a team that works well together. Yeah. Um, and the closer, you, the more you work with them, and the more you you know about the people and. You can't pick it up the, off the, the resume. It's, it's, it's impossible. You no, know, every, every resume I've ever seen looks great. Yeah. <laughs> me too. It's funny how that is. <laughs> One thing that's been interesting to me lately, you know, being on the advertising side and the marketing side, is that orphan drugs are, have made such a huge impact. And now orphan drugs are, um, I don't want to be flip and call them the flavor of the month, but orphan drugs have really sort of raised their profile dramatically. What are your thoughts on the future of orphan drugs? And do you think that's going to be as big a part of the industry as it is today say 15 years from now yeah so i think um i think you have to go back to the question of why right so mm -hmm. um the the reason orphan drugs have, have made a big splash is um largely because pharma had to abandon the blockbuster model right, right. um so they they realized that you know the chances of getting you know, the next Lipitor, it's just not something you can build long-term sustainability off of. I mean, if you could do it, great, but those those drugs are few and far between. Mm -hmm. And that they're much better off playing in markets where they where there are lower barriers to entry and, and you can get a premium for uh, life-saving, life-altering treatment. And the orphan drug market is perfectly set up for that. I mean, there are all um, sorts of benefits to going down an orphan drug path uh, with FDA. Um, mm -hmm. That's right. And, you know, you also, typically the drugs that you're developing are for severe life-threatening indications. And if you, they, they really do change people's lives when, when they hit the market. So there's a real benefit to the patient mm -hmm. and that carries the premium. So, you know, this was a model that, uh, you know, a couple of companies did a good job developing and, and a lot of people jump on the bandwagon, which is, you know, which is the way money moves. Money yeah, follows that's money. Right. Um, it's a good but I think what the question is, what's the future? And, you know, I think there is, you know, there's no economy in the world. I mean, the world economy cannot support the future um, healthcare costs, if it continues to go 
the way it currently is going, right? There's just not enough money in all the banks in the world to to pay for this for the next century. So something's going to have to break. And uh, I think I think pricing is, is probably where it's going to happen. Um, hmm. And so the returns on life-saving treatments should and, and probably will always command a premium. But, you know, it's, it's, the question is how big is that premium going to be? Is it, it, and, and is it going to be at a break even point for very, very small indications? And, and I don't have the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that that's, that's where you should be looking for the answers to see how that develops. Mm-hmm. And especially when you start thinking about diseases like cancer, which are being subdivided into more and more forms of cancer. Lung cancer is no longer just lung cancer. Right. Breast cancer is no longer breast cancer. There's, there are genetic signatures to different types of tumors, and they respond differently to different types of treatment and different combinations of treatment. And, and this is going to get more and more complicated. Um, and, uh, you know, right now, while there's money in the healthcare system, it, it can be afforded. Um, but at some point, there will be a tipping there will be a tipping point. Like you say, pricing becomes a huge issue because to make them to make the to make the uh, the drugs profitable, they have to be priced at, at these astronomical levels. And you're right. I mean, eventually, there's going it's going to be very difficult to justify those premiums. Yeah. Well, I think what you're seeing right now is, um, you know, FDA when they get a norphin indication, I think they're being pretty rigorous in terms of making sure that it really is an orphan indication and it's mm-hmm. not just a sub indication of a really large group right and yep. they're that people are trying to game the system a little bit to right like like as you say cancer you some some tiny yep. genetic signature cancer when in fact it's a when when, when it can be used for right. you know everybody right so I, I think that these are some of the questions that are being asked and answered now uh, so okay, so real quickly, um, stem cell therapy and personalized medicine. Uh, so I've heard it bandied about that this is kind of the end of the pharma model. Well, now we're all just gonna we're gonna get some stem cells, and those are gonna just build us new things that were and they they're not gonna be broken, and uh, that's how we're gonna fix things from now on, and that's the end of the pharma model. What's your take on stem cell therapy and personalized medicine? Well, so I, I mean I don't have that much experience in this area, but. Okay. You know, I, I, I look at it. I look at your question a little bit differently, coming from, you know, running a research group. Um, uh-huh. You know, over the past thirty years, I've seen so many technologies come that have promised to sort of change the way we do drug discovery, um, mm-hmm. or will ra- radically, you know, unemploy every chemist on the on the earth, <laughs> and and you know, they never come yeah. to fruition. And, and what you realize is that, you know, technology, when it hits, it, it's overhyped and then it crashes. And then smart people start asking the question, well, what does this technology actually do and where can it be applied? And then it tends to have a second renaissance where mm-hmm. it, technology tends to be applied in very specific, meaningful, productive ways. And and then, then it, it, it really becomes a catalyst for research as opposed to, you know, just replacing the way we do things. It, it just adds more information or adds more analytics to the, to the system. And, and you're, you're making better decisions faster. And, and that's really where you want with technology. And I, mm-hmm. I look at stem cell 
therapy much the same way. I look at, you know, the genomics and genetics revolutions in terms of personalizing medicine the same way. I, I see these as, you know, they're not going to replace everything, but what they're going to have are very, very meaningful, specific cases, which can't be treated otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, they're going to be expensive. They're going to be complicated to administer. So if there's a, you know, small molecule pill or an antibody that does the same thing, um, that's going to be the preferred mode of treatment. But if there's nothing else that can be treated, it's worth the effort. As you say, the pricing model and people's interest in um, cost-effective medicine, uh, it may be better. You're right. It may be better to give people um, a super-duper um, NSAID as opposed to rebuild your rebuild your knee cartilage. Right. For and, instance, and at least while the, at least during the the next phase when yeah. when it becomes more and more popular, at some mm. point somebody's going to figure out a way of making that cheaper than yes. <laughs> Than, than uh, you know the the end said well, it'll be harder to keep it make it cheaper than aspirin but yeah you well know, you never know give them a couple of decades yeah exactly so okay so I have two more questions so the first of my last two questions is if you had um, let's say ten million dollars where would you be putting it to work in the pharma industry today um you know maybe I'm a romantic but I I, I would be looking at, at really the large unmet medical diseases, um, mm -hmm. uh, unmet medical needs. I, I, I think that the, the, the things that pharma and the, the whole um, medicine industry have been able to tackle in the past 10 to 50 years, it, it's, it's really amazing um, yeah. in terms of quality of life, in terms of, of longevity. Um, but there are still a lot of diseases out there that, that haven't been solved. Um, I, I personally have uh, an interest in uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or mm -hmm. Parkinson's, mm -hmm. um, you know, multiple sclerosis to, to a certain degree as well as a neurodegenerative disease. I, I, I personally find the science and, uh, you know, the the tantalizing bits of, of research that keep coming out, um, there, there's something in the back of my brain that says, okay, the, the pieces are coming together. What are the one or two pieces that we still need to, to solve these puzzles? Um, because, you know, Alzheimer's could bankrupt countries in, in the next 50 years. Um, so you can hmm. think about, you know, where can you really make an impact, um, and, and, and how do you do that? So for me, that's sort of where I would personally be looking, but mm -hmm. you can make that, that argument for, for lots of different diseases um, and, and other parts of the medical field. Um, you know, I'm a therapeutics person, so uh, that's where my, my scientific and personal yeah. interests lie. Mm -hmm. But um, there's, there's no shortage of, of medical needs out there right now. Okay, so last question. Um, as you know, Study Hall's a we're a uh, we're a podcast about marketing and advertising. And what would you? Where do you think, or is there a place for, um, or where does marketing and advertising sort of join early stage pharma? Is there a place for it? If you're in marketing and advertising, where, how should you be looking at early stage pharma? And is there a role, or is it just something to watch? 
Oh, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about it. I mean, <laughs> I, look, I, I think that, um, you know, if you're talking about the classic marketing, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, marketing in the sense of product-based marketing you need to have a product, right? Of course. Um, so, of course. so I think that that's so in 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 that in that way, I think it's it's kind of hard to see it sort of fit in. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are a lot of corollaries to what marketing is and the analytics that go into marketing mm-hmm. that could really be beneficial to um, to people like me and startups. And mm-hmm. you know, one is even just meaningful market analysis, so that when you're talking to investors, you can sort of at least have a ballpark figure of what an exit would look like, what a sale would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, so there are clearly, there are clearly analytics that, that could be contributed, mm-hmm. but I think more broadly, um, you know, we all have to sell ourselves. We all have to sell our teams. We all have to sell our projects and there are different ways of doing it. Um, you know, there are the, the, the people who have, incredible energy and there are people who tend to be a little bit more soft-spoken all of the approaches can work but you have to develop a common message um for your 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 company um mm-hmm. and you know this goes beyond mission statements this goes right. this basically people just have to believe in what they're doing and people have to be able to communicate to people uh, and investors and to potential buyers and patients and, um, you know, the, your family, you know, what is it that you're doing? Why is it important? And, and those sort of marketing aspects or those sort of aspects of marketing, I think are universal for anyone in any field. Um, and, and, and are really, really important to develop. Yeah. I've always, I've thought often that the, the storytelling aspect of advertising and marketing could be beneficial to people at the at the early stages of their development. I know you're t- you know we're you're talking earlier about the story, capital T capital S, the story of the company, right. and and the and putting all that together in a in a uh, compelling way. I think you know say for example at a pitch deck, and I know there are people who do that, um, but uh, that sort of that always kind of interested me. Um, but uh, but I've. Uh, you know, it's, it's always a question of, you know, working. So for instance, at where I came up on Madison Avenue, you know, we never saw anything until it was a phase three, right? Never, ever saw something in a phase two, or if we did, it was, you know, it was because we were walking down the hallway and we passed the guy (laughs) whose product was in phase two. That was not, it was never, it was never part of the, it was never part of our world. And I always thought that, um, I always wondered if there was a role further down the chain because I, cause I, I always saw a, um, an opportunity for storytelling. I mean, that's one of the things I like most about advertising is it really is at a certain level storytelling and, uh, and it's, and but storytelling I, I, is a, is an art that has a lot of applications. Absolutely. And I, I'll relay an anecdote. When I was a first year graduate student, um, walking out of a, out of a, uh, out of a seminar that, was really interesting science, um, but it was just all over the place. And uh, there was a professor next to me, and he just looks at me and says, never forget, nothing destroys good science more than bad presentation. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. That's and it true. was a lesson that I learned very, very early on that, um, 
you have to tell your story and you have to be able to tell it succinctly and, and clearly. Yeah. It's a necessity no matter where you are in the development of your product. Um, anyway, so hopefully here's to, here's to getting further down the chain. But anyway, um, well, that's it. Those are my questions for you. I want to thanks so much for your time, Terry. It was really no problem. Uh, I'm glad we finally got everything to work. Yeah. <laughs> Schedules and computers finally yeah. all cooperating. Study Hall is sponsored by Douglas and Rungi. Henry Veloso did the music. Thanks again for listening.